1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. A while back, I spoke to someone who had found out that the partner they worked for in the law firm was going to move firms, and they wanted to take their team with them. The pitch was to come and enjoy a better opportunity in the rival firm, but it was unsettling, and it raised difficult questions. Should they go with them? Was there something wrong with the firm they were at already? In my first job after university, I came to London working for BT. Um, And after the first year of this graduate scheme I was on, some of my peers started leaving the program and going to other companies. And so it was unsettling. And the conversations in um, in the canteen were, well, is there something wrong with the scheme? Should we say, should we go? And we find this kind of thing in all kinds of places. Perhaps you found it in school. Parents, you see a few other parents take their children out of the school, and it only takes a few before the whole playground is feeling unsettled. Is there something wrong here? And sometimes this kind of thing happens in the church. Now, many people leave churches for all kinds of good reasons. And here at St. Helens, we're in the city And we see people come and go and move along for all kinds of good reasons as life moves along, as new opportunities for the gospel arise. But the church that John is writing to have seen people that they know leave them and also leave the apostles' teaching. We've been calling them in this series the departed. And the departed have been, well, they've departed from the true message, the message of Jesus that the apostles proclaimed. 
And yet at the same time, these departed are claiming that they know God. They're claiming that they are enlightened. And so John's writing to a church that is feeling unsettled. Friends, maybe even relatives have left, and the questions are raised, are they right? Have we missed something? Have we got it massively wrong here? Should we go with them? Our verses this morning are at the end of John's introductory section to this letter, and it reaches a climax in verses 12 to 14. So you'll find 12 to 14 on page 1228. And and they're a really distinctive set of verses. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Six times he says why he's writing and the reason is really striking. It's because, well, he's confident they are the real deal. Why is John writing to this church that he's so confident in? Because... In this unsettling time, where people have left them and have moved on from the apostles' message, he wants to reassure those who are left behind that they really do know God. They can be certain of eternal life. And so John's method in these opening chapters has been to give some diagnostic tests that expose the departed and then reassure those who remain. And we saw last time that test... about sin and the cross, those who deny sin, well, they walk in darkness. Don't be unsettled by them because it's those who confess their sin honestly in dependence on Jesus and his death on the cross who can be confident of eternal life, who are forgiven and cleansed and walk in the light. And this week, John gives his next diagnostic. And the question is, well, do the departed obey God's commands? John uses a structure of three sayings to show these diagnostics. Last time it was three if we say sayings. This time, three whoever says sayings. And they get more specific as they go, like climbing a spiral staircase. Verse four. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Then next one down in verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And then verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. Exposing the departed and reassuring those who remain. And so our first point, God's family keep his commands. When I bought my first car, a used car, on the test drive, the gear stick was really hard to get into first gear. So I mentioned this to the salesman who said that was normal for this kind of car. Well, having bought the car and then had the gearbox refurbished, I realized a general principle about gearboxes. If it doesn't change gear properly, it's not a feature, it's broken. Well, John begins, verse 3, with a general principle for us, a headline general principle. By this we know that we have come to know him, that is, we've come to know God if we keep his commandments. 
the evidence we know God, we keep his commandments. And to keep is to watchfully obey. But when you commit to keep a promise, well, you have to be conscious about it, to watchfully uphold it. And so to keep God's commands is to be concerned and careful to obey them. And one writer calls it active sympathy to God's commands. We might say it's we want to do his will. Those who know God, who have fellowship with him, are in his family, and they want to display the family likeness. It's possible we hear this language of keeping commands, and we think, well, that sounds a bit restrictive, a bit uninspiring. But of course, whose commands are they? They're the commands of God who is light, who is pure, who is good, who is love. And more than that, he made the world and he made us. And we live in a culture, don't we, that's really deeply concerned for human flourishing, but at the same time, it derides God's commands. And the evidence suggests, well, that strategy is not working. We live in a world full of darkness. But true human flourishing comes when we listen to what our maker says, the one who is light, and we live in the world his way, the way of light. To keep God's commands is a profoundly good thing. And it's what people who know him do. And it's vital to get the order of things clear here. The way John writes is really deliberate. You see, obedience to God's commands is always an outworking of being in his family. It's never the means of entry. John is deliberate to talk first about issues of sin and the cross, how we walk in the light as we confess our sin and come to Jesus. And then, well, he speaks of the family business obeying his commands. It's the gospel order. I think it was David Cook over the summer who said two comes before three. I certainly heard that over the summer. I think he was referring to Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. In Exodus 20, God gives Israel his law, and the list of the Ten Commandments begins in verse 3. But verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 2 comes before 3. Redemption and relationship before the commands and the way we live. Keeping God's commandments is the response of those who know him as Father. We recognize our sin. We trust in the Lord Jesus. We have fellowship with God. We walk in the light. And as those who are walking in the light, well, our lives are characterized by the family likeness. God's family keep his commandments. And so John takes this diagnostic general principle and then he applies it to the departed. And that's what he does in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And the issue is submission to God's word. And the person who claims to know God but is consistently rejecting his word, well, John says that claim is a lie. It's closely tied to chapter 1 again, denial of sin and consistent rejection of God's word. They come hand in hand, a disregard for God's commands, and then a refusal to acknowledge it. So whatever they're saying, the departed, about their enlightened way, well, they're not speaking the truth. Their lives show there is no relationship with God, and they show there's no love for him either. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word In him truly the love of God is perfected. There are two ideas that are helpful to understand here. There's the idea of what perfected means, 
and then what the love of God means. And perfected is the idea of completion, something that's reached its goal. So you might say that a person's love of music reaches its goal when they play the piano. Or someone's love for tennis, well, it reaches its completion when they're sitting on center court watching the final. And that same word for perfected, well, it's used by Jesus to speak of the cross as he accomplishes God's work. It is finished. Then this phrase, the love of God, well, that could refer to God's love for us or our love for God. And it seems a sense of our love for God does fit well. Our love for God finds concrete expression. If you like, it's cashed out. It finds its goal when we keep his word, when we live his way in his world. One writer put it like this, true love for God is expressed not in mystical experience or sentimental language, but in moral obedience. Think of a child who loves their daddy. When he gives them direction for their love for him, well, it finds concrete expression in obedience. It's perfected. And then I wonder if the ambiguity of this phrase, the love of God, well, it may also suggest God's love for us is in view too. A wonderful picture of the love we experience in fellowship with God the Father and the Son. We're in fellowship with the one who is love, who is the source of love, who is transforming us in love so that we might love. Our love for God, perfected as we keep his word, his love for us reaching completion as we are brought into his family through his son and are being conformed into the family likeness. Well, perhaps some of us hear this and we hear it and we are conscious of how we fall short of keeping God's words. As I was preparing this talk, reflecting on these words, I've been challenged about ways I fall short. But I think that's a good and normal experience for God's family. John is clear, those who walk in the light will find God's word exposes sin. It's a word that corrects and rebukes and trains and admonishes. The normal experience of those who know God is repentance daily. And it's in confidence dependent, confident dependence on Jesus. Remember chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so knowing our security in Jesus, well, we seek to walk in his ways. And so John says, here's the principle. God's people keep his commands. And as you consider the departed, well, what do you find? Are they characterized by this likeness? Or are they persistently refusing God's word? The tricky thing is sometimes they're hard to spot. The departed don't have flashing lights on and they don't go around sort of announcing their name, the departed. And they, may, they will claim to know God, and they may claim to be enlightened. And they might even be quite keen on keeping God's commands. Think of the Pharisees in John's Gospel. Their meticulous concern to obey the Sabbath laws. So what John does is he takes it up a level. We go up a step or two on the spiral staircase, and he focuses in his diagnostic. Point two, God's family imitate Jesus. Second half of verse five. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. To abide is to know God, it's to remain. Who is in God's family? Those who remain in him. Those who walked as he walked. And how does God walk? In the person of Jesus Christ in history. 
John says, those who know God will walk as Jesus walked. They will listen to him, submit to him, follow him, imitate him. So the question is specific. What do the departed think of Jesus? And there are already hints in the letter they've sidelined him. They deny their sin. The work of Jesus on the cross, minimized, ignored. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Well, what does John have in mind here? How did Jesus walk? Well, he explains in verse 7 and 8. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. To follow Jesus is part of the gospel message that was proclaimed to this church that they heard when they first believed. The gospel shaped to come to him, to depend on him for forgiveness, and then to follow him as those who walk in the light. But did you notice how John seems to get contradictory? Look at the start of verse 7. I'm writing to you no new commandment. And then the start of verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment. So what does he mean? Is this John getting flustered under pressure? One of those breakfast TV interviews where they're pushing him and they're saying, John, you say the commandment's not new, and then you say it is new. Which is it, John? Well, John would say it's both. It's old in the sense that they've already known it and they've heard it when they first believe. It's new in the sense that it is the defining command of the new era of light, which is inaugurated in Jesus Christ. We read those words earlier. We said them to one another from John 13. Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And this is the new commandment. And just look down to the end of verse 8. Because John is writing because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The world is in darkness. We see that around us. We see the troubles on the news and we encounter troubles in our lives. Darkness, the realm of sin and the evil one. But wonderfully, it's coming to an end. John begins his gospel with these words. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. God who is light has come in the flesh. He has overthrown in the person of Jesus the darkness through his death and resurrection. So the true light is shining. And John says, that's why I'm focused on this commandment. It's the commandment of the new era. It defines God's family of light and life. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. Well, how has Jesus loved his people John 13, verse 1, John writes of Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's speaking of the cross and it's love to its fullest degree, perfected, selfless and sacrificial and deeply costly. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it was a picture of that love perfected at the cross. And he said, you should also do just as I have done for you. Not to die for sins, but to love one another in Jesus' family sacrificially and in costly ways. John says that's what walking as Jesus walked looks like. So he's getting specific. 
up the spiral staircase, a diagnostic in those unsettling times. Well, what do the departed think of Jesus? And crucially, how do they treat his people? Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. As I've considered these verses over and over, I've become conscious of ways that I, my love for the church family is deficient. Many of us will be conscious of ways we want to love better, to grow in that love. It's a challenging command. But the diagnostic here is not asking us to try and decide if our love is good enough to say whether or not we abide in the light. It's much more binary. It's black and white. The contrast between love and hate. The question is, if you claim to be in the light, well, do you desire to serve God's people or do you hate them? And that's where the reassurance lands. It's not about subjectively rating your love. It's rooted in the question, are we for God's people or against them? Do we desire to serve one another, even as we see our failings? A desire that only lives in God's family. Or do we hate? And hatred of God's people, well, it exposes the departed as frauds. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Now, this language of hate is very strong. And someone might say, well, hold on a minute. I don't hate Christians. But to hate is to be against something or someone. And John says there's no middle neutral ground where it's possible to, well, not love God's people, but sort of tolerate them. It's for or against. Imagine in an everyday family, um, you ask your colleague perhaps, well, how's, how's your relationship with your parents? And they answer, tolerate them that's not love is it there's light and dark there's love for God's people imperfect yes but very real or there's hatred and this hatred well it may not always look aggressive and vicious it could look passive the former church leader who's written a whole course to deconstruct the Christian faith it all looks very professional very polite but it's opposed to Jesus and his people or the conversation with the person who was once part of that evangelical church, but not now. They've departed from the apostles' words. They claim to be enlightened. And the conversation's pleasant. Until you explain what you think about God's design for marriage. And then it goes cold. And perhaps the insults flow. Or the once close friend who, well, they won't respond to your messages anymore. They've no interest in God's family. They don't really care. Situations like this are really painful. And we want to make sure our conduct towards the departed is full of love and grace. We long for repentance, for restoration. But this hatred of those who they once called brothers, well, it's ultimately about their view of Jesus. Jesus said, if they hate me, they will also hate you. It's Jesus and his words that are the stumbling block. All through the New Testament, the stumbling block, which we see referenced in verse 10, well, it refers to Jesus and rejection of him. They may claim enlightenment, but their behavior says they hate Jesus. They're walking in the darkness. And so John says, don't be unsettled by them. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going 
because darkness has blinded his eyes. Instead, John says, be reassured. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Be reassured you love one another. You are for one another. And that is the family characteristic of those who abide in the light. And in the light there is no stumbling. And so John writes to reassure. Perhaps you're looking in this morning on Christian things and you're trying to work out, well, what's genuine? What John would say is the apostle's word in the driving seat is their honesty about sin and dependence on Jesus and his death on the cross for forgiveness. And is there love for one another? By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John has written this because this church are the real thing. And that takes us to verse 12 to 14 again. Six times reassuring that they're the real thing. Three times he says, I'm writing. Three times he says, I write to you. I think the difference is kind of an emphasis thing. Those first three are concluding the introduction and they're emphatic. If you've had that experience of writing a letter or writing something and you get really into it and your pen starts to write faster and your writing is getting less legible, well, I wonder if John is a bit like that at this point. The stylus is flying across the papyrus and he's saying, look, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Don't be unsettled. And then the second three, perhaps more reflective, standing back as he has the whole letter in view to say all of this, all I've written, well, it's to help you understand the departed and to process what's going on so that you'll respond rightly as God's family and you'll be confident of eternal life. Did you notice how full these verses are of family language, children, fathers, young men, I think the repetition of fathers and young men, that's not excluding women. Little children speaks of the whole church, men and women. And all the statements would be true, whoever we are. But I wonder if John picks them out, fathers and young men, because they're the ones who perhaps could significantly affect the church's response to the departed. Perhaps he writes this as a way to keep the whole church steady, the whole family Fathers are the older men, perhaps the elders in the church, those who lead. And twice John says to them, you know him who's from the beginning. It's such a weighty and rooted statement, as if to say, don't be unsettled. Don't change course. You know the true and everlasting God. Keep steering the ship. Hold your course steady through the winds. And then to the younger men, well, I wonder if he mentions them because they may lead households, if not the church, or perhaps they're more prone to jump to new ideas. The departed are claiming they know God. They're claiming enlightenment. Well, John says to them, don't be unsettled. You don't need to go anywhere else. Don't jump after them because you've already arrived. You're remaining in the word of God. You are strong. In Jesus, you have overcome the evil one. And so John says, don't be drawn by the claims of the departed. I'm writing to you because you are the real thing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through Jesus you've brought us into your family, that we might serve you. 
Thank you for the goodness of your word and the purity of your commands. Thank you that we live in the era of light under the Lord Jesus, a family characterized by love for one another as he has loved us. And Father, we pray that if and when unsettling times come, please with this word help us to see things clearly and give us great assurance that we'd hold fast to your word, certain of eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.